Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. The problem is it's such a reductive, oversimplified solution where everybody with cholesterol above 200 is automatically given a sand drug. And it's like, well, that's more marketing and commercialism and less actually nuance and context. Hi, I'm Mark Groves. I'm a human connection specialist and founder of Create the Love. At an early point in my life, I became obsessed with understanding relationships, the intricacies of how people connect. And through this exploration, I have created a life and a business dedicated to learning out loud and exploring how we interact with each other and the world. This podcast brings the world's top thought leaders, spiritual luminaries, physicians, scientists, researchers, best-selling authors, and health and wellness experts under one roof to discuss the good, the bad, the messy, and of course, the beautiful parts of the human experience. Welcome to the Mark Groves Podcast. I can't wait to dive in with you. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Dr. Will Cole. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you on, you know, in the context of relationships, health, relationship to self. I think we often don't make the correlation between our relationships and inflammation and health. Like that's something that we don't tend to draw a line between those things, but they're not different. So I wonder if maybe we could just start there in the context of uh, how they are correlated. Yeah, very much. I mean, it's a lot of my job in functional medicine when I'm consulting patients online, it's educating them and empowering them really with the truth that mental health is not separate from physical health, that mental health is physical health and our our brain is a part of our body just as much as as any other organ. And our relationships are are just as influential on our physiology as the foods that we eat. And conversely, I would say the foods that we eat also impact how we show up to our relationships and how we feel about ourselves and the bandwidth we have for people and the sound mind and space that we can hold for people. I posted on social media recently and said, and it came out of a conversation that I was having with a patient that was, we were talking about healthy boundaries and, you know, people like to talk about healthy boundaries when it comes to relationships and different things in their life. But 
oftentimes with society, we like to like leave food out of it. And, 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 uh, and especially on social media, they'll call it toxic diet culture when you talk about avoiding certain foods. And I was talking to a patient about just shifting the paradigm around that and applying the same principles of healthy boundary around food and alcohol as well as this conversation was around. And I said, continuing to eat foods or drink something that doesn't love you back is like staying in a toxic relationship and wondering why you're still miserable. And avoiding those things isn't restrictive, it's self-respect. And I think that's the paradigm shift that I want my patients to have. And hopefully anybody listens to this conversation. That correlation is so important because I would imagine that that inability to place those boundaries in a relational setting, if you don't have this skill with food or you don't have this skill with interpersonal relationships, they won't translate. But if you do start to bring them into one area of your life, I think you just can't help but sense that you need them in other areas. Like if you start to bring in boundaries with your food, you also feel like you're powerful, that you're discerning, that you're making choices that really contribute to your mental, emotional, and relational well-being. Absolutely. Absolutely. I th- and that's the empowerment I want people to have for themselves. And all of these things, like boundaries are medicine, and and we need to apply that to all of the areas of our life, even the dark corners where we don't want to go there. But oftentimes, it's those dark corners that are keeping us back from leveling up how we want to feel. Again, it's and just as much as I'm talking about food and exposure to toxins and chronic infections and gut health and all of these physiological things, the relationship, the, the amount that I have to really dig in to understand somebody's life is quite a bit at the initial consultation because their relationship, the support system they have, the community that they have, we have people fill out an adverse childhood experience uh, questionnaire to understand even past traumas as well. It just so mar- so much far-reaching implications to how people's relationships influences their health. So all of these things, they are wellness. And we can't just focus on one thing where it's just the gym or it's just my food. It's just this, whatever it is. It's health is multifactorial and we need to understand these, these uh, different aspects of wellness. So what do you see in your practice with patients, you know, when they're consuming, let's say more processed foods, lots of sugar, alcohol, do you see a correlation to disrupted relationships, to trauma, to, you know, I would imagine it's not like eating certain types of food causes that kind of thing, but I would imagine there's a correlation and curious your thoughts between having experienced things like the adverse childhood and then, and also socioeconomic factors that determine food access. Yeah. What do you think about that? It's bi-directional, right? It, it's, it's, and then what came first, the chicken or the egg? It's really understanding it is bi-directional for many people and really getting to the heart of what came first. One small example that comes to mind, it's not small, but one simple example is digestive problems and mood issues. They're very much well linked in the scientific literature. Your gut and brain are actually formed from the same fetal tissue. So when babies are growing in their mother's womb, the gut and brain are formed from that same fetal tissue and they are inextricably linked for the rest of our lives through what's called the gut-brain axis or the connection between the gut and the brain. 95% of serotonin, our happy neurotransmitter, is made in the gut, stored in the gut. 50% of dopamine is made in the gut and stored in the gut. The gut, even if you think about it physically, it even resembles the brain. So the vagus nerve is really what connects to both the gut and the brain. The vagus translates as the wanderer. It's the wandering nerve. It's the longest nerve in the body. 
And it's the main regulator of the autonomic nervous system when you're talking about the sympathetic fight or flight stressed state and then the parasympathetic resting, digesting, hormone balance state. If somebody's eating inflammatory foods, if they're eating foods that don't love them back, that's disrupting the second brain, that's disrupting the gut microbiome. Depending on the study that you look at, it's upwards of 100 trillion bacteria. So meaning this gut garden, all the bacteria in the gut, it's upwards of 100 trillion bacteria. And to put that into perspective, we have about 10 trillion human cells. So we're all about 10 times more bacteria than human. And this gut garden, this microbiome metropolis influences neurotransmitters. So different studies have been done looking at bacterial dysbiosis, bacterial overgrowth, and actually influencing neurotransmitter synthesis because your gut's such a master regulator of these neurotransmitters that impact our mood. And then obviously the foods that we eat too can raise inflammation. 75% of our immune system's in the gut too. Inflammation's a product of the immune system. So there's these neuroinflammatory gut-brain axis components to people's mood. And if you don't feel well, if you're feeling anxious and depressed and triggered all the time and you have no bandwidth, that's how you're going to show up to your relationships. And it's very much people need to make the connection to, the again, the physiological as well as the psychological aspects of our wellness. So are some of the main symptoms that you are experiencing this dysbiosis in the gut, this uh, vagal nerve issue, you know, with the, I didn't know that the brain and gut were the same fetal too. I mean, that's bananas when you just say that 95% of the serotonin, the dopamine, is the dopamine released in the gut released from food? The foods that we eat, and this is across the board, the foods we eat very much influences the way that these neurotransmitters are produced. So absolutely. I mean, the, the foods we eat, I mean, in a, said it in a different way, we feel what our microbiome eats. Like what we eat influences them, our microbiome and our microbiome influences how we feel. So it is a massive communication between, I mean, we're basically a sophisticated host for this microbiome, these trillions of bacteria, and they like certain foods. They don't like other foods, certain foods, and they also opportunistic bacteria, bacteria that, that are like weeds overgrowing in this gut garden and pathogenic bacteria, they like certain foods too. So they actually, there's crazy studies done in many different, all you have to do is go on PubMed and type in a micro, a microbiome gut brain axis, looking at its implication in things like cravings and anxiety and depression. And there's studies that show that certain bacterial colonies actually influence what we crave so we actually keep going for foods that feed it. So it's pretty science fiction sounding, but it's quite actually science-based. Yeah, it's like we're a vehicle for these bacteria. You mm -hmm. know, are we going to be a ashram or a roller coaster? <laughs> you know, I think that's... <laughs> yeah, are we going to be an ashram or Vegas for our microbiome? Yeah. <laughs> right, totally. Is this a, a microbiome bachelor party or what's happening? <laughs> um, some of the symptoms you were talking about, this anxiety, this depression, I don't think we often make, again, this correlation between mood and food. So... When we begin, because I think a lot of our healing journey can begin, you know, through setting a boundary relationally, and then we experience self-worth, and and then we're like, oh, I got to look at, we kind of start to play whack-a-mole with 
the things that are going on. When we start with our gut, like maybe it is due to mood, maybe it is due to coming to someone like you and learning that we need to change how we eat. How might we present symptomatically that makes us come to you? And second, where might we begin then? Like where are the first sort of places that we'd begin to make adjustments? Start there. I have a lot of questions. I think part of the problem is people are so disconnected from their, from their bodies. Like they're so distracted and our culture is designed, like so much of our culture is designed to make us distracted and numbed and constantly getting these cheap dopamine hits that people aren't actually really intuitively grounding themselves to realize how they feel. They want to be numbed and distracted from how they feel. So the fatigue or the background anxiety or the, you know, inner resistance to like their life or their low grade depression or their digestive problems, they they are pushing through. And just because something's common doesn't necessarily make it normal. Just because it's your everyday and you go through it every day doesn't mean you should settle for it. So I think the first thing that I would have people do is just check in with themselves, like really looking in and looking at the systems of the body and realize, is it a good quality day? Or are you just pushing through the day? Do you need tons of sugar and caffeine and foods that give you that hit of dopamine or whatever that thing online that people keep going back to that's or shopping or whatever it is. That's just, is that your pleasure? Like, or really are you have in, enjoying your life? So that's the first and foremost, I think is people just getting real with themselves and having a real reckoning on the sustainability of how they feel physically and mentally and emotionally and spiritually and realizing, do they want better in life? Do they want to live a bigger, more full life. Because I see so many people, once they are honest with themselves, really do realize the unsustainability of how where they're going. And they have to, they realize they have to do something different to see something different. They need to take inventory of all the different aspects of their life and what that looks like. This is a topic that I've seen play out in so many different walks of life, people around the world. All of the books that I've written are really born out of that clinical experience and just my passion to help people live the life that they were created for. Then my next book is actually called Gut Feelings and it's exploring that. There's sort of the gut side and the feeling side and sort of the duality of both of those and how they're really two sides of the same coin and looking at that. But on a functional medicine side of it, then it's labs. It's comprehensive health history and labs. And it's really looking at, let's look at data points and get these per- get this person feeling well. And those labs are a reflection of why they feel the way that they do. So it's ba- the labs are based off of a health history, but it may look like blood tests, gut microbiome tests, and really, like I mentioned, these trauma scoring as well to understand the implication that they're mental emotional health is impacting their physical health as well. When you talk about trauma, how does trauma impact the gut? How does it impact inflammation? There's a lot of really compelling evidence looking at this too. I mean, looking at how, I mean, one theory, it's referred to as the polyvagal theory. It's basically research looking at how trauma is actually stored in our body. And the vagus nerve is implicated in this for quite a bit. But it's shifting the body into a sympathetic fight or flight stressed state. Their parasympathetic resting, digesting is downregulated. So you have this sort of seesaw that's really out of proportion and overactivation of the sympathetic response. And that raises inflammation levels in the body. Inflammation is not inherently bad. Just like those gut microbiome, the, the bacteria, it's it's about balance. It's the Goldilocks principle. You don't want too much of it. You don't want, you don't want 
deficiency of it either. So a sympathetic fight or flight overactivation is that breaking of homeostasis or that Goldilocks principle in their body that raises inflammation levels in the body. And then the body wants to mitigate that. It's trying to bring about homeostasis. So it raises cortisol. Cortisol is an endogenous immunosuppressant. Basically, it's a natural anti-inflammatory. The body's trying to rectify that imbalance. It's just unsustainable. When you're, it's like this, you're being chased by a tiger, the, that's the analogy that's used, but there's no tiger. So your body's constantly in this threat hypervigilant mode, trying to attenuate and balance that by secreting cortisol, which impacts your blood sugar, your blood pressure. Then what happens is our mast cells, our immune cells release histamines. Histamines are, they act as neurotransmitters basically. And the brain is rich with these different histamine receptor sites, which can throw up neurotransmitters and further raise inflammation levels in the body. There's a whole field of research called the, the cytokine model of cognitive function. Um, how cytokines are pro-inflammatory cells. So it's researchers looking at how inflammation impacts how our brains work. And that's really what a lot of the evidence is pointing to is that's really a neuroinflammatory response where histamine is implicated in some people, especially people that have autoimmunity. They can have something called histamine intolerance and mast cell activation syndrome. It's a big, vicious cycle. They're kind of reliving that trauma every day of their life. And it exists on a spectrum. I mean, the dysautonomia is the one end of that spectrum where the autonomic nervous system is perpetually in that hypervigilant state. But there are millions more that would never be diagnosed with dysautonomia but their nervous system still stick, stuck in a hypervigilant state and it's showing up in their health. You look at labs and you can measure this in their hormones. You can measure this in their inflammation levels. You can measure this as far as things like autoimmune problems. And the crazy thing is, it's not just past trauma. There's evidence in the scientific literature pointing to even intergenerational trauma and really going back generations and how it's actually impacting epigenetics. I am constantly going from one thing to the next. You know, I, I live a busy life and I'm often grabbing my nutrition on the go. And I, like you, I'm guessing, want to eat lots of greens. I want to crush greens all day long. I don't want to take the time to make a salad or do a juicing and have to deal with all that mess. And so Organifi's green juice has really been the answer for me. It's super simple. It just takes 30 seconds to prep. You got no shopping, no chopping, no juicing, no blending. You just add water, you mix it up, and you drink it up, and you let your body soak in the benefits. And they've recently just made their flavors super powered with crisp green apple, which I love, and also mint. So it has 11 superfoods, all of which are 100% organic. It has 600 milligrams of clinically proven ashwagandha, which is an adaptogen that helps support a healthy response to stress, chlorella, moringa, spirulina, turmeric, and more, all of which work together in a sweet symphony of incredible energy-boosting and detoxing benefits. If you're looking for an easy, delicious, and cost-effective way to get your greens, go to Organifi.com slash create the love. That is O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I dot com slash create the love and you save 20% off this green juice as well as all of Organifi's products. We don't often think of the inheritance of things like that, you know, where we 
Even when, though when we say that, or you hear historically someone say that, you know, my father was an alcoholic, my dad, grandfather was an alcoholic, alcoholism runs in the family. But it's like, it's not alcoholism that runs in the family. It's the behavioral patterns and the trauma patterns and the unresolved, you know, to, we might, there might be, I think there's a couple gene markers that may predispose us to addiction. But there's nothing that says this is the alcoholic gene, is there? You know, is it more just inherited trauma? Yeah. And I think even if there are genes that code for these things, we all have genetic predispositions for things. But it's really the field of epigenetics that influences whether that gene is expressed or not. We all have genes for bad things. I mean, that it's just and our but our genetics haven't changed in 10,000 years. I mean, the what has changed is not genetics. It's epigenetics. It's the environment, the world we live in. It's the foods we're eating or not eating. It's exposure to toxins like pesticides, herbicides, things like glyphosate, collective trauma, personal trauma. All of these epigenetic factors are this perfect storm of, of variables that can awaken. And, and, and it's really happening when you look at the level of mental health issues and the level of autoimmune problems specifically. It, they're being awoken like never before in human history, not because of genetics. They've always been there, but because of what is triggering those genes. What do you think is the largest contributing factor to the turning on? And have you noticed a massive increase in the last two or three years? Without a doubt, it's food. Food is the lowest hanging fruit for sure. When you're looking at the epidemic rise of mental health issues, brain health issues, and autoimmune problems, without a doubt, it's food. Processed? It's processed foods, and it's the soil in which the food is grown. So it's really, you look at certain studies and researchers really correlating a lot of the explosion of specifically autoimmune problems in the 90s when glyphosate was very pervasively used. But it's not just glyphosate. It certainly is, even if there's no glyphosate, the processed foods that are inflammatory, that are disruptive to the microbiome, glyphosate is just further gasoline on this already dysfunctional fire. And it's a confluence of factors. It's not just one thing. There's not just one, you know, boogeyman that's that's causing it. It's just, it, it's a critical mass of a mismatch between genetics and epigenetics. Researchers call it an evolutionary mismatch. This, this Our DNA hasn't changed in 10,000 years, but yet so much has changed in such a few generations, a finite period of time when you're putting it in context with the totality of human existence so it's this genetic epigenetic mismatch is really at the heart and the explanation as to why we as a human race are seeing things like insane levels of anxiety and depression. And this, again, is impacting relationships. I mean, and autoimmune problems, which further impacts relationships too, because people are constantly in that sympathetic, fight or flight, stressed, inflamed state. So it's food is a, is a major part of that. And the way that we live our lives. Yeah, the last couple of years, just as a collective trauma too, you know, we've been, kind, if we watch the news, like there's no way you can escape into rest and digest. Like there's just, it's like this constant impact of information and fear, 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 you know? Well, it's true. And I, it, we have to realize that we're a part of, we're a small like microcosm of a larger macro. And I, I think of the parallels between what goes on globally when you look at like climate change and pollution in the world and how physiologically that's going on in people's bodies. Like they, they, 
it's like climate change and the, it's, it's chronic inflammation is climate change. Inflammation is not inherently bad. It's a dis- disruption of the ecosystem, right? And just like we have our microbiome, the planet has its microbiome too, the soil microbiome. And there's a disruption there. We have a disruption of our microbiome. It's very much linked. And then the, the psychosocial, you mentioned like social media or the news, it's constantly feeding that dysfunction. But then even you think about it back like upstream from that thing that we're watching on social media or reading on the news, it's the producer, the corporation society, what's out there. It's everybody's in that hypervigilant mode. I mean, everybody's perpetuating this dysfunctional ecosystem. And we need to realize this is unsustainable. It's unsustainable for our planet and it's unsustainable for our own personal health as well. It seems like the same behaviors are at the root of the sort of exponentially extractive nature of what makes a corporation take what they know is a toxin with glyphosate. They know this. They've known this for ages. And I think there was just a, a lawsuit completed like a couple of years ago on glyphosate, right? It's, it's very much, I mean, we're talking about a compound that's illegal or highly restricted in many countries around the world, yet it is basically, I mean, completely unfettered here. I mean, it's, it's, it can be, it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous in our, in our country today. So it is, uh, we're a massive experiment right now and specifically in the United States. And again, it's not perfect in other countries. Certainly it's not perfect. Some countries are doing better than others, but I mean, even so much that, I can have patients that go on holiday to Europe and they can eat a lot more variety of things in Europe than they can in the United States. They have horrible reactions to foods here when they go to vacation. Part of that could be the fact that they're less stressed on vacation too. I think it's not saying it's entirely the quality of the food, but again, that's a, that's a bi-directional component. It's their vagus nerve. Are they less stressed when they're eating? You're, certainly that's a part of it. But also no one that's looking at what's going on today is going to say it's just that. It's certainly uh, the role that the food quality has on our microbiome and the resilience that people have when they're not exposed to these amount of things. Yeah, because I think of the extractive nature then of social media, which monetizes and commoditizes attention. So the people producing the content or the news want us to consume more content, which in order to do that, the best way to do that is to dysregulate you. And, you know, you speak to, yeah, we're going on vacation, maybe experiencing more relaxation. But then what does that say about our culture that, you know, it's kind of like, I remember reading a meme years ago that said, you know, create a life that you don't need to take a vacation from. I don't know that that's even possible. Like all of the causes of all of the things that you're speaking about seem to be because of the distance that we put between ourselves and nature, ourselves and circadian rhythms, ourselves. Like we keep, it's just such an interesting arrogance of humanity that we think we can design food or hack something. I think of these like beyond burgers, you know, and I'm like, there's no nutritional or very little nutritional information in these. And of course, the people pushing them make money from them. So that connection to profit and marketing and lobbying true of any of the large industries, they're knowingly killing people. Like I think not the Beyond Burgers, but that's probably an experiment to be figured out. But like using glyphosate or even knowing the impact that phones have on our mental health and what social media does to us. That research has been out for a ton, a long time. We know that anxiety rates are through the roof since the advent of like buttons. 
but who's going to get in the way of this train? You know, us, like we're going to do it on a podcast. Hopefully that stops it. That would be beautiful. But yeah, like what are your thoughts on all of that? I know that's a, it's a large subject, but it feels like omnidirectional, you know, or, or sorry, not omni, but variable. Right. And I think it will be grassroots. I think that change will happen from the bottom up. And I think throughout history, many examples can be given of grassroots changes really being how it is. Because I don't think we can depend on the greater, larger monolithic industries to really have our best interests. I don't think that's going to happen. I think there's pockets of good. There's people that are in powerful positions that do see what we're seeing, but they're the outliers. And they're still single people within a monolithic, massive machines that go on. But I certainly know powerful people in powerful positions that see what we're seeing, but they're still one people, one person, they're a group of people that are maybe aware and are okay with this, but it's like, it's quite bigger than them. So I think you're going to see pockets of things from the top down, pocket pockets of good things from the top down. And you can mention examples of that. But for the most part, I think really the industry will shift in, you know, you hear the phrase of, you know, vote with your dollar. I think that that's a powerful thing. I think that industry, especially for-profit industries, are really aware of consumer, what consumers want. And I've seen in functional medicine and doing what I've been doing for the past 12 years, like what I said 12 plus years ago was definitely more radical than it is today. And to me, at that point, I have hope to where we're going, you know, as far as people wanting better. Uh, and you look at the, like, I think of Expo West in Anaheim that's every year or, you know, almost every year, except the pandemic, but like, it's the largest natural grocer expo in the world. And you have these massive corporations that are there and they bought up some brands or they're there in and of itself learning about the industry. They're there maybe because they care, but I would assume it's mainly because that's where the money is going. And they are, I think that's powerful. And I, I don't, I think that the growth of the quote unquote wellness world or natural organic or alternative ideas within wellness, it's largely been because the people, the consumers have decided that they want something better. So, and I think over the past 12 years, what's happened? It's the democratization of information like podcasts like this. Whereas 12, 15, 18 years ago, people were not listening to podcasts like we are today. And they got their news from the four channels on TV that were sponsored by the same 10 corp corporations. And now it's very much democratized and decentralized, which is threatening to some people. But the real smart corporations will get behind the decentralization and realize that it doesn't have to be either or. It can be both and, and people can be empowered and still get better for you options. And that shouldn't be threatening to anybody. And I, I that to me is, I guess I have an optimistic view of the future if people could start moving in that way. Mm, I join you in that optimistic view. I remember hearing recently a quote that the answer to globalism is localism. And you know, this sort of revolution that you're inviting in us to start, you know, grassroots, to start with our families, to start with ourselves, of course, and then our families, our relationships. What are some of then the first steps that one can take in sort of this act of grassroots? I think of like farmer's markets, if we can access those, a lot of areas don't have farmer's markets. So how can we begin to do this? 
I mean, farmers markets are definitely up there. And so if you don't, if you are in an area and I live a small town in Western Pennsylvania, you know, I, I support farmers markets whenever you can. If you live in even many urban areas, you'll have the farmers from the surrounding country will go into the city to have farmers markets. Since I know some of the major cities within the United States have amazing farmers markets. So, um, and that, but there are food deserts and there's massive problems like in Western Pennsylvania, specifically in certain areas, you'd think, okay, it's farm country, but they're food deserts. They're rural food deserts where they have tons of fast food, but not a lot of good food. So sometimes you're going to have to drive if you, and some people don't have cars. I, I realize that or don't, it's gas is too expensive to get to where the farmer's markets are. So we have a long way to go for certain marginalized people, certainly. And we have to do better here. But I have to say this, that the vast majority, there's exceptions to the rule, like I mentioned, but the vast majority of Americans, it's not a price problem, it's a priority problem. Because they'd rather spend their money on the latest clothes, fashion, tech stuff, vacations, all the material stuff. But then they flinch and say, well, getting healthy is just for the wealthy. Uh, but really, it, it's they don't flinch on buying the materialistic dopamine hitting like addictive stuff that our culture sells us. I really would empower the average Westerner that's listening to this to say like, what am I spending my money on? Like, what am I prioritizing? Because the United States, we spend more on healthcare than the next, like as a country, more on healthcare than in the next 10 top spending countries combined Yet we have the most disease and the shortest lifespan and the shortest shortest health span of all industrialized nations. There's a report out of JAMA, which isn't even new. It's probably even worse now, the Journal of American Medical Association. So this is, we spend so much money on disease care, basically, not on actually health care. But in individuals, we are depending on these insurance companies for our health. And anybody with insurance will tell you it's great for crisis care. God forbid, car accidents or life-saving surgery, but for actual health, chronic health care and getting somebody healthy and improving your wellness, insurance is not designed for that. It's designed for emergency care and certainly we need that. But so I, I would say I would just encourage people to have a paradigm shift and quit depending on corporations and the government for what's your responsibility is your health. So that would be my first advice. And that shows up in just listening to conversations like this, empowering yourself, having agency over your health. That would be first and foremost. And then start cleaning up the foods that you eat. We live in such an awesome time where I live. I can go to Costco and Aldi and Walmart and Target and buy things online like Thrive Market, like cheaper things that are organic, that are healthy, that are better for you at least, are options. So to me, there's very little excuse for the average Westerner that's listening to this. It's more of just empowering and educating people. Yeah, you know, one thing I did recently is I bought organic uh, broccoli sprouts and then a mason jar with a sprout lid. And that's because of a guest I had on. I grew like a whole week's worth of broccoli sprouts for like next to nothing. And all I had to do was water it, like rinse it and spin it twice a day. And I was just like enamored. You know, we had a garden growing up as kids. My mom had a garden. And, you know, as an adult, I never really bothered. I was sort of caught in the same sort of desire for convenience, desire, you know, for, well, the just the fact that I didn't have to. I was like, man, I would really want to start to do these things. And it was amazing how simple that was. You know, and now I'm like, I think it's like one of the most nutritious 
sprouts or, or vegetables that you can have. Yeah, broccoli sprouts specifically, it has high levels of sulforaphane, which I'm sure you know, but it's like it's sulforaphane is wonderful for detoxification, supporting detoxification pathways, something called methylation, which many people's brains are really having the dysfunction because of a lack of supporting methylation. And nutrient density, the food that we eat, influences our brain and influences all these things we're talking about. Yes, through the gut-brain axis, but many other uh, pathways in which the nutrient density is is the raw materials in which our body uses to uh, synthesize the things we need to thrive on many, many ways. So yeah, I think that really just looking at the foods you eat, taking into consideration, and I would avoid if you haven't, if the person that's listening to this hasn't done this, really looking at minimizing what I call the inflammatory core four, and that's going to be gluten containing grains. And you could have a nuanced conversation of what that is, like glyphosate is implicated in that, of course, but it's also the overconsumption of it. It's the crossbreeding of these grains. It's just Again, a genetic epigenetic mismatch. It's a different grain we're eating today than what we ate thousands and thousands of years ago. Plus, this was a famine food. This is a food that stored well and humans had it in case of famine. Now we're eating, we're feasting on famine food year round. Then it's crossbred and hybridized and genetically modified and <laughs> sprayed with junk. So it's not just one reason, but uh, so looking at gluten containing grains, that's wheat and rye and barley and spelt. Again, there are better for you options like organic sourdough bread and it's fermented. So it breaks down some of the gluten proteins in there, making it more digestible for our microbiome. Uh, industrial seed oils, things like canola oil, vegetable oil, decreasing those, added sugar. But even, I mean, sugar is hidden in everything, right? So you have to read labels, educate yourself on that. Look at the grams of added sugar, even like uh, the euphemisms like agave nectar or the things that sound more natural from a marketing standpoint still is high fructose. Maple syrup, honey. Yeah, or evaporated cane sugar. And it it sounds so natural, like they just picked it off and <laughs> squeezed it into the bottle for you. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's, it's so savvy. It's savvy. And then uh, conventional dairy would be another one. Like there's nothing wrong with like cultured grass-fed cheeses and things like that for many people. But I would look at the amount of regular straight up milk people are having too. Yeah. So it, it's, a, it's, it's a spectrum between healthy versions of these things and less healthy versions. But I would just be mindful of that inflammatory core four and having less of those in your breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then increasing things like healthy fats, like wild caught fish avocados, olives, nuts and seeds, if you tolerate those. Some people with digestive problems don't do it, don't have, don't do well with so much of those. Uh, Grass-fed beef, if I didn't mention them. And then basically every fruit and vegetable. And and you don't have to buy all organic. So go, the environmental working group, ewg.org has done great. They update this every year, I think. It's the clean 15 and the dirty dozen. So it's the clean 15 of the produce that, like the fruits and vegetables that are least likely to have lots of pesticides and herbicides. So you buy conventional there. Don't buy organic if you want to save money there. And then the dirty dozen, those are going to be the fruits and vegetables that are most likely to have higher pesticides and herbicides. So wash it really well or buy organic when possible. Those are some tips. With the seed oils, this seems to be like a sneaky thing. Because when I started to learn about seed oils, I was like, this is literally in everything. I go to like a Trader Joe's or a Whole Foods and it's even in their 
you know, pre-made stuff. And I'm like, wait, you're Whole Foods. You're supposed to not do this. And then Jeff Bezos laughs, I'm sure, in the background. (laughs) What is it about seed oils, like maybe simply put, and which ones are bad and what can we replace them with? The problem is, look, if people were having a diverse level of healthy fats and then had some seed oils, I don't think it would be a problem, especially if it's organic, like canola oil. And like, I do not think it's a health food. But if somebody's having lots of omegas, omega threes, it's really the balance and the ratios of omegas three, six, and nine. So if somebody was having ample copious amounts of omega threes, like eating the fatty fish and eating these whole food based polyunsaturated fats, that's really what these are. Polyunsaturated fats or PUFAs as we call them. So if someone's having a lot of whole food based omega threes and then some canola oil and vegetable oil, whatever, it's not so, not so problematic. The problem is the modern Western diet is so out of balance the other way around that the omega six is so high and then decreased omega three. That's the problem. So it's about the context of the omega three, six, and nine ratio that matters more is what the science is really pointing to. Um, so I don't want to demonize it over and oversimplify it and reduce it to just these are evil things. I just think it's the overconsumption of them and then the underconsumption of the whole food-based omega-3s that's the problem. But I agree with you. It, the reason why it's used, and there's no canola plant either. It's a rapeseed. And I, someone told me this. I don't know if it's true or not. That canola, it's derived from Canadian seed. And it's a rape rapeseed. So sorry. Freaking Canadians. It's the one bad thing the Canadians have done in the world. <laughs> <laughs> it's rapeseed. We'll apologize. Don't yeah. worry. We're good at apologizing. It's I'm okay. So sorry. Americans have done every, every other thing wrong, <laughs> and we've given it to you. It's overconsumption of these seed oils. It's the problem. So less seed oils, more of the other things uh, like monounsaturated fats, healthy, diverse, saturated fats, whole food-based saturated fats. That's really the pro- going to be the good thing. And then if you want to have the random canola oil in your packaged food, in the context with the larger nutrient-dense diet, it's going to be less problematic. Okay, this is a question that I've wanted to ask you from the onset of knowing you, which is because as a rep, I launched when I was young, my very first job was covering a maternity leave and I sold a, I sold a statin. And then when I got out of that industry years later, 14, 13 years later, 14 years later, I remember going to a doctor and the doctor saying, all right, you have, I, I was, I was eating a bulletproof coffee. I was drinking bulletproof coffees, but I was also eating high sugar content, which those together are not a great idea. Don't do that. If you're listening, just do maybe the higher fat side. And I remember going to a doctor who I didn't know at a walk-in and he was like, oh, your cholesterol side, I'm going to refer you to a lipid clinic. And I'm like, um, Hey, do you want to ask what I'm eating? And he didn't want to ask what I was eating. So I didn't continue my relationship with him, but I started to study statins and I started to study cholesterol and I hadn't done that before, but I felt like I was kind of blown off my seat and my whole world of what like statins and fat, but let's just say fat causes high cholesterol. That sentence that I've been taught, because I grew up in the eighties and nineties, I was born in 78. So I was just like, holy shit. Everything I've been taught is a lie. Every label I've been given. And it honestly, it really destabilized me because I was just like, well, if this isn't true, this was like a main staple of the pharma industry. This is a main staple of the food industry. And I just started to read in deeper spaces, you know, like at the time, I think Dave Asprey's stuff was really starting to come about. And so can you maybe offer some more clarity about fat? I'd want my parents to listen to this because they're still believers in this 1990s 
you know, 2000s thing where people aren't looking at the sugar content of a label. They just saw fat is bad. People still eat margarine all the time and no offense if you eat margarine, but you'll get educated on it. So yeah, I'm curious your thoughts and all that. And if that's a can of worms, let me know. Yeah, no, it's important. And I think this applies to really any pharmaceutical, right? It's, it's, we're, and we're not anti-medication in functional medicine. We just want to ask the question, what is your most effective option that causes you the least amount of side effects? And for some people, that medication fits that criteria. They need to be on it and it's life-saving and there's nothing wrong with that. But the problem is, again, it's being pro-choice, it's democratization of this information and having made people to have informed consent. But to have informed consent, you have to be informed and giving people choice to have whatever choice that they want and to give those choices to people. So there are people that should be on statin drugs and should be, and anybody that is on a statin drug, talk with your doctor about this. The problem is it's such a reductive, oversimplified solution where everybody with cholesterol above 200 is automatically given a statin drug. And it's like, well, that's more marketing and commercialism and less actually nuance and context. Total cholesterol is just an incomplete perspective on the complexity of actual cardiometabolic health. So it could be a problem or not a problem. So I think the statistic is around 50%, about half of people who have heart attack and strokes actually have normal to low total cholesterol. So it's actually not a good predictor. It's like flipping a coin. So it could be a problem or not. So the better predictors is the total context of it. So what do we look at in functional medicine? And this is like not just me. This is any doctor that's trained through the Institute for Functional Medicine. And the Cleveland Clinic has a functional medicine center. Many mainstream institutions have functional medicine center. This is very much mainstream for people that are actually informed on this field of healthcare. And I'll say this too, these mainstream institutions are not spending millions and millions of dollars to open up functional medicine centers based off of woo-woo and quackery. They're doing this because the data speaks for itself and they see people getting healthy and they're ahead of the curve. It's nefarious to be against people getting healthy and actually seeing these labs improved. So to better predictors for cardiovascular risk factors are going to be First of all, running what's called an NMR test, which is a very conventional test. I mean, Quest calls it cardio IQ and uh, the LabCorp will call it NMR uh, lipid profile. So it's a nuclear magnetic resonance. It's a, it's the subfractionation of particles that carry cholesterol. So you can run that. Anybody can get this. It's oftentimes covered by insurance. And you can look at what's called a small dense LDL particles, which are these little oxidized, rusted I think of them as the kind of rusted BB bullets that can potentially tear through arterial walls and they're associated in the research with increased risk of heart attack and stroke. So it's not the cholesterol in this case. It is the particles which are protein that, that carry cholesterol. So they're sort of like cholesterol rafts, cholesterol like transporters. So it's high dense, small dense LDL particles or what the lab would classify it as pattern B which is the more oxidized pattern and not enough of the pattern A, which is the fluffy, buoyant, protective particles, which are like little fluffy cotton balls. So the quote unquote bad cholesterol, LDL, can be transported in a good transporter or a bad transporter or an oxidized or inflamed or non-inflamed. So it's really the inflammation that damages the particles that carry cholesterol. That's the problem. It's inflammation that damages these things. And then the liver makes these oxidized particles. So the context matters here too. You want to be in pattern A. These LDL particles, the bad, quote unquote, bad cholesterol actually behaves 
like good cholesterol. It's cardioprotective. So looking at NMR panel, we want to look also at HDL or good cholesterol, which contributes to the total cholesterol. Some people can have 200 cholesterol, even 250, but really be that 250 is mostly high HDL, good cholesterol, which is actually cardioprotective within reason. So we want to look at look out for low HDL. That's problematic. We want to look for look out for high small, small dense LDL particles. That's problematic. We want to look out for high triglycerides or circulating fat. That is a part of insulin resistance, which is really what's driving all these heart attack and strokes. It's it like doubles the risk factor. It's the leading cause of heart attack and stroke is insulin resistance. So that the body is so smart, once they get blood sugar down and it starts to convert glucose or blood sugar as circulating fats or triglycerides. So in the optimal zone in functional medicine, we're looking at optimal, not average. We want triglycerides to be under 100. We want HDL to be in the 60s, 70s, something like that. We want small dense LDL particles to be as low as they can be um, and the fluffy buoyant ones to be as high as they should be. And then we want to look at inflammation markers, uh, high sensitivity C-reactive protein, very conventional test, the American Heart Association, the CDC, and in functional medicine, we want HSCRP to be under one, uh, which is low inflammation. And then last marker I would say is high, we want to avoid high homocysteine, which is an inflammatory marker. It impacts heart attack and stroke risks but it also can act as a neurotoxin. So it can contribute to neuro brain inflammation too. And it's implicated in neurodegenerative problems like Alzheimer's too. That's not a coincidence that researchers even call Alzheimer's type three diabetes. And it's part of that homocysteine problem. That as well as blood sugar and A1C, you're looking at your total uh, three month average of your blood sugar. We want glucose to be under 90. We want A1C to be under 5.5 ideally. So all that to say is, it's complex and you cannot oversimplify it and say, oh, if it's above 200, give them a statin drug because it's a very incomplete perspective on all these other markers that are important. And then in the context of what we're eating, you talked before about omega-3 to 6-9s and the ratio being important. When we're just looking at a food and we're like, I'm avoiding eating foods that have fat in them, what really should we be looking? I know you talk about nutrient density. So when we're looking at a food to choose. Should we be saying, oh, I'm eating a low fat one? Because now I'm seeing people are eating freaking meat diets. Like they just eat meat and they just eat vegetables. They seem to be these extremes. And I'm curious if you can, I know that's a lot to make sense of the diet world because that's a whole other can of worms, but it just seems illogical to avoid everything with fat in it. Yeah, it is. And research is really pointing that to that is that is really flimsy evidence at best that fat is Saturated fat specifically is bad for us. In the context with a diverse diet with lots of different types of fat and fiber from plant foods, saturated fat is healthy, not actually unhealthy. It's actually healthy for most adults to be having. Uh, 25% of all our body's cholesterols in our brain, our hormones need saturated fat, our brain needs saturated fat, our immune system needs saturated fat, but it should be put in context with like you said, what the researchers refer to as a mixed meal is like you were saying, like that butter coffee with like super high sugar diet, refined carbohydrates, that's going to be problematic. But if you're talking about vegetables, fruits, and then a grass-fed beef, and in the context of that, that's actually protective for many people. There are gene variants. Bioindividuality is the heart of functional medicine. So there are people that are have these ApoA and APOE gene variants, like APOE 3-4, APOE 4-4, four, four, 
technically speaking, if they, especially if they have insulin resistance, it may behoove them to be mindful of their saturated fat intake, but that's not everybody. And I'll say this, I see a lot of people with APOE 404 gene variants where technically speaking, based on that genetics, they should limit their saturated fat or at least be cognizant of that, that their cholesterol markers are completely fine. So that's back to the larger conversation that we are not just our genetics and things are a lot more complex than just that one gene variant because there's so many variables to consider both genetically, there could be other genes that are actually helping that gene out, and epigenetics, uh, things like stress and the foods we eat, our gut microbiome that also influences things like cholesterol. It's very reductive to oversimplify it to say well, saturated fat is bad. And it, that's not just my opinion. That's really anybody that's looking at the research will say it's not that simple. And in the context of a whole food-based diet with diverse amounts of fat and vegetable fibers, polyphenol-rich foods, uh, it's actually protective for most people to have these healthy fats. If I'm looking at sort of the number one variable to explore in the choices of foods outside of choosing organic uh, when when possible and uh, avoiding products that have glyphosate in them, outside of that and gluten, is choosing foods that don't have refined sugar the next or is it above that as a priority? Like these uh, high fructose corn syrups, these sugars that you're talking about? Like if I was to just try to eliminate one thing that would have one of the most large impacts outside of those other things you mentioned, is it sugar? Yeah, I would say if you had to pick, if I had to say thinking about people and looking at labs all day long and seeing what's the bigger, biggest needle mover, it would be sugar. Yeah. It, it, you're going to see a biggest dent. If you're going to do one thing, you're like, I really can't do everything. I only have the bandwidth for one thing. <laughs> I would say then picking sugar and looking at the grams of the amount of added sugar you're having and not, you don't have to avoid all sugar, but I, instead of like the refined added sugar, whether that's in packages or you're adding sweeteners to things, decrease the amount of total sugar that you're having in a day. And maybe even as a little mindfulness experiment to see how you're fueling your body track for a week or two in something like a diet tracking app, like Chronometer or MyFitnessPal or something like that. And just use it as an awareness tool of like, how much added sugar am I having? I would say, and this is very loose, this is by no means like strict, less than 100 grams, even let's just say less than 150 grams a day. And then for some people that are a little bit more insulin resistant, they should probably be less than 75 for a while to therapeutically allow their insulin receptor sites to become more sensitive again and handle blood sugar appropriately. That's bioindividuality there. But I'd say a loose goal would be 150 grams or less. Someone's insulin resistant for a time less than 75. And that whatever sugar you are having should be whole foods based. So having fruits that have fiber, which helps to blunt that fructose or having, you know, more, I would say whole food based sweeteners like honey, like a natural whole honey, manuka honey. I was trying to think of the name for it. A manuka honey that has antimicrobial properties that's good for your microbiome and it's good for supporting your immune system or like a, a pure maple syrup, something like that, that are not meant to have excessive amounts of it, but you don't need that much of these things. But freely fiber is one of those things and protein are the two things that really help to blunt any blood sugar spike. Uh, and then I would say a little tip, pro tip that you can do as a mindfulness tool too, is there's a lot of these direct-to-consumer continuous glucose monitors, CGMs, that you can buy yeah. 
I've seen these. Yeah, like wear them for 30 days and check in your with your own bioindividuality. And you may be surprised to find out, oh, wow, like these three foods are like my best foods and I didn't know. Like these are the three ones that really messed me up. And this impacts your mood and impacts your relationships, impacts your energy, impacts your sleep, impacts your sex drive. All of these things we just take for, and it's not just food. It's also stress and sleep and physical activity, all these things too. And it's like real time, your own end of one experiment for you to see. Levels is one of those. Dr. Casey Means, a colleague and friend of mine, she's the, the medical director at Levels. NutriSense is another one. Uh, that some great wearables you can consider. Yeah, Levels looks pretty cool. I was talking to uh, Tom. From levels who i think is one of the founders yeah they're super smart there oh my god it was uh, yeah i was speaking to them about trying it out and then uh i'm going to do it but one of my reluctances to doing it was like this is going to be a lot of information that i'm not sure i want you know you're sort of classic once i'm aware i'm gonna have to change this thing so uh maybe i'll just pretend i'm not aware which i know that doesn't actually serve any good you know it's like anything in life you got to confront the stuff but sometimes you know i think that's a good point like it's stress, stressing about good, healthy things isn't good for your health either. So I, I think that there's a balance of this, this data, right? And I think orthorexia is a problem too for some people. Then they become obsessive about healthy foods. And I don't think that's good either. That's why I said mindfulness experiment. Like do it for a time, then drop it and keep it simple. Because ultimately your headspace in which you eat these foods is important too. Well, I'm going to just speak for everybody who's listening. We likely all want to know where do you find more information from you? Where can you get more of, because this is just a taste of the wisdom that you drop. You know, I know you have a podcast, uh, so on there, but where else can people find? Because I know you have telehealth and and you have a new book coming. So if you could share all that, we'll put the links in the show notes as well. Yes, uh, thank you for the, the opportunity. Um, everything's at drwillcole.com, um, D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. And the links to Gut Feelings comes out in March 2023. It's for pre-order now. We're giving away free signed books of lots of like just gut feeling stuff. And we're talking about the subtitle is how to heal the shame-fueled relationship between what you eat and how you feel. And we talk all about the polyvagal and shame, trauma, and stress and how it impacts the vagus nerve and the gut-brain axis. I'm really excited for this book. And the podcast is called The Art of Being Well. It comes out every Monday and Thursday at this point on anywhere you listen to podcasts. Perfect. Well, thanks so much for your time and sharing your expertise. I could have you back on a number of times to be able to jam even deeper on all this stuff. So I I look forward to doing that. Thanks a lot, Will. Thanks, man. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If this episode resonated with you, one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any more. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, or share the episode with your community on Instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out. This helps get it into more people's ears, and I'm so grateful for your support, always. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love.